The first challenge that they had to overcome was that we had an American army that was untested. When we got into the war at the beginning, you know, we only had 250,000 standing troops, Army National Guard, Marine Corps. 19 months later, we had 4.5 million men in uniform. That's an increase of 1,700% in 19 months. An excerpt from today's guest, who is among the world's leading experts on the Lost Battalion in World War I. Robert Laplander is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. This is Point of the Spirit. Welcome back. I'm Robert Child. Today's guest's research into the Lost Battalion of the 77th Division spans 20 years and is by far the most extensive ever done in their regard. This week marks the 130th anniversary of that heroic engagement. His book is called Finding the Lost Battalion, Beyond the Myths and Legends of America's Famous World War I Epic, and Robert Laplander joins us now. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I do appreciate it. Oh, we're honored, truly honored. Uh, before we get underway, I want to reference a review. Robert Laplander has written one of the best unit histories I have read. This is an outstanding book and a must-read for students and enthusiasts of the American Expeditionary Forces and the Music Argonne Battle. Excellent. And that was Lieutenant Colonel Robert Owen of U.S. Marine Corps. Do you know uh, the Lieutenant Colonel, Rob? Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Owen, uh, yeah, I've talked to him a couple of times. His book, To Limited Endurance, is absolutely fantastic. It follows uh, 6th Marines in France mm -hmm. uh, from the time they land until the uh, the end of the war. And uh, it it really is a fabulous book. I'll have to pick it up. Um, but we're, we're talking about your book on this episode. The action in the book takes place during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. What were some of the challenges the Americans faced going into, the, into that battle? The Meuse-Argonne Offensive is the largest and bloodiest battle America's ever been involved in, then or since. And what people forget about it is the battle itself. Nobody remembers it. Um, it was, if this was the 1920s or 1930s, of course, you'd know all about it. World War II overshadowed everything. But even, uh, even Dwight Eisenhower said that he couldn't have done what they did in the expeditionary force in World War II without having the framework of the expeditionary force in World War I to draw upon. Mm -hmm. For the very first time, we went overseas to fight a coalition war, and it was not an easy task. And Pershing faced many, many challenges in just getting an independent American army in the field. When they went in to the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, the the, the challenges of the terrain itself were the first things that they had to worry about. Um, when you look at the first 10 or 15 days of the battle and you look at how many awards there were in that area uh, of operations and you look and see the relatively small area that they covered, they did not advance very far at all. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the second half of the battle, uh, which was the race to, to the Meuse River, uh, began arguably about October 15th and went until the end of the war. You see they covered great distances following that. The first challenge that they had to overcome was that we had an American army that was untested. Right. When we got into the war at the beginning, uh, 
you know, we only had 250,000 standing troops, Army, National Guard, Marine Corps. 19 months later, we had 4.5 million men in uniform. That's an increase of 1,700% in 19 Amazing. months. Amazing. And we had to build two infrastructures to support them, one here and one overseas. Then we had to train this army to fight uh, its first major battle since Appomattox um, with you know 20th century weapons that completely outstripped the tactics for the previous four years. And what it took the allies three and a half years to learn, we had to learn in six months. Um, and that last 47 days of the war that we fought in that area, the Ameri modern American army was born. We went into that battle as teenagers. We came out as adults. We had to learn uh, how to fight across terrain in open ground and in forest. Uh, we had to learn how to coordinate artillery and air services and armor. Um, and it all happened right now, learning on the job. So there were a lot of mistakes made. That's what I was, I was gonna say. It was a real learning on the job experience for the troops. <laughs> yeah, it was a learning curve, all right. Now I understand the, uh, the Lost Battalion, the term was coined by a newspaper editor in New York and their plight got extensive coverage while it was happening. This essentially elevated them um, to hero status. Can you tell us about that? There was um, a gentleman's agreement between, you know, the different news services that they would share. They would share news. They would share news art, um, reporting uh, and stories that they would send back. There would be claims to first rights and second rights and whatnot. Um, but they all pretty much worked together. You have to understand that the American Expeditionary Force was under um, the control of the AEF High Command, which released only what it wanted to concerning the war. Mm -hmm. um, we had to paint the war in a positive light, as positive a light as possible. At home, the Committee for Public Information, the CPI, uh, ran a magnificent uh, propaganda campaign to sell the war to the American public. Part of that was creating heroes. Right. Um, perhaps the most famous of the heroes of the First World War would be Sergeant York. Alvin York did what Alvin York did. Um, as a matter of fact, the day following the relief of the Lost Battalion, but nobody knew about it until after the war. Hmm. York uh, didn't become uh, a hero until after the fighting had ceased. These guys were heroes while they were still trapped in that ravine uh, in, 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 the, in the Argonne. There was a reporter who had gone forward. He had smelled smoke uh, a few days earlier because most people don't realize that Whittlesey's command was actually trapped twice. Uh, mm -hmm. Between the 28th of September and the 30th of September, they were trapped on a hillside called Lowell Moor. And they had been surrounded. About 400 of them had been surrounded. And it was just a foreshadowing of what was to come. The Germans were in the midst of retreat at that point. And what they were surrounded by was a rear guard action. Had the Germans actually understood what they had in their hands right there, um, the story would have been quite, quite a bit different. But they didn't until it was too late and they drew back. Now, this reporter had seen that episode. By the time he'd gotten forward to write some articles about it, there was only been one or two articles. Um, 
the situation had cleared itself up. Now, this reporter was none other than Damon Runyon. Mm. And when Little C's command became trapped in the Charlevoix Ravine, Runyon went forward and actually embedded himself with members of the 307th Infantry who were fighting to get through to them. Um, most people think that, that embedding reporters started in World War II. No, it started all the way back then. Um, he went and spent two days in the front lines with these guys facing the same uh, challenges that they did so that he could get the story. He and one other reporter fished it back to their editors in the States. And one of the editors sent back a message simply saying, send more on lost battalion. Uh, it, it sounded good. It just sounded good. And that, uh, that came through on the 5th of October. And by the 6th, they were featuring news articles about these guys at home already. There were a couple of small news articles. By the time the situation was relieved on the 7th, articles on the 8th started coming out in mass. These guys were already heroes before they came out. Information in war is strictly controlled. And the only reason that this got through is because it was such a good hero story. Um, To the Army, it was just another day on the front. The Army didn't think anything of this event at the time. Uh, Remember that in war, obtaining the objective is the only thing that they're worried about. And if it's going to cost a unit to do it, that's tragic. But the obtaining the objective is what they're there for so the army looked at this entire episode you know kind of cross-eyed oh well it's a big no big deal it wasn't until after the event that they realized exactly all that had gone on what had happened Hmm. and then they started to blow it up as a bigger event than they had thought at first simply because of the heroism that had happened there um the absolute epic that it turned out to be and the fact that the press at home had already started to run with this football and the army just latched onto it and eventually the story got bigger uh, than anybody had intended until it was the most overreported story of america's participation in the first world war thanks for listening to the program i hope you'll support our guests by clicking on the book purchase link in this episode's description Each purchase helps support local bookstores, and that's always a good thing. September 17, 1862, stands still today as the single bloodiest day in all of American history. The Lincoln administration now, for the very first time in the war, is desperate. It must have a victory. The enemy has now invaded the North. We cannot fail. There cannot be another loss. Among the men, about one in four of the Union soldiers here are green, have not been in combat. Many of them are only a few weeks from home. Many of them are loading their weapons for the first time as they're going into battle. For Lincoln, the victory at Antietam was more than just an item on a political schedule. It had become a matter of almost religious commitment for him to link Antietam with the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln and Lee at Antietam, The Cost of Freedom. Narrated by Ron Maxwell and streaming on Amazon Prime. Paint a picture of the commander, Charles Whittlesey. 
Whittlesey is an interesting character to talk to uh, talk about simply because he's he's not the kind of guy that you would have expected to be a hero of any kind. He didn't think himself a hero. He certainly didn't act like a hero. He had no military ego whatsoever. Um, he was probably one of the most unmilitary individuals before he went to war. But once he got he got there, he was determined to do it right. Uh, Whittlesey was actually born in Florence, Wisconsin. And when his family was from out east, and when he was younger, about 13, he moved back to Pittsfield, Massachusetts with his family, where he finished school. He went to uh, Williams College as prep. He went to um, Harvard for law. He became a great lawyer. He was, he was not a trial lawyer. He dealt with contracts, regulations, and banking law. Mm. Um, he opened his, his own law firm on Wall Street uh, with his best friend. And when the war came, he got involved in the Plattsburgh Officers Training Program. Um, he didn't really want to be part of it, but we have to remember that uh, at that time, it was all about doing what was expected of you for your generation. Whittlesey was a dyed-in-the-wool socialist. He did not believe in combat. He did not believe that there should be a reason for war. But once we got into it, he was determined that his country, not to let his country down, he was a patriot first. Um, he had relatives back in the uh, revolution. You can trace his relatives all the way back to England coming over on the Mayflower. Mm -hmm. And he had a very, very deep sense of duty when he got into the 77th Division, they put him in charge of the headquarters company of the 308th Infantry, figuring that was a great place to put him where he wouldn't get into any trouble. He was a wonderful paper pusher, so much so that they made him a captain right off the bat. Um, and even his men would say that when you worked with Whittlesey and he was bossing the job, you knew it got done right. Um, he was not a yeller. He didn't scream at people. Um, if he was displeased with your your work. He, uh, he had a tendency to kill you with boring, unending tasks. Uh, that, that was your punishment. When they got to France and the attrition started at the front in their first battles in the Vell, in the Vell sector, um, he had his first taste at leading men uh, on and off as um, he got put in charge of units that were just needing somebody at the time. He was never in charge of any units for longer than a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and he never actually took them into combat. Um, it wasn't until they were moving up to the Argonne that they realized that there was, there was an opening for first battalion commander. Um, he was actually got the job because he was next in line. Um, there was nobody else to take the job. And, the machine gun officer in the 307th Infantry, who was, he had served uh, three and a half years with the British Army. He was actually another one guy that was from Wisconsin. When the war broke out, he had gone and joined uh, the Canadians, gone overseas with the Canadian Army, had been wounded two or three times, had been decorated. When we got into the war, he said, see you guys, I'm going over to the Americans. Uh, they placed him in the 77th Division. He was a very, very well-respected man uh, named Eugene Houghton. And when the division commander asked his opinion, he said, Whittlesey is the only guy in the 308 who can ever tell me anything. So 
on that recommendation. They made him first battalion commander and he took uh, the 308th into the Argonne. He was lead, lead battalion going into the Argonne. He didn't know anything. He never led men into combat before, but he was determined that he was going to do it right. right. Orders to Whittlesey were as uh, victims from God. And he followed his orders to the letter without question. That is what he did. And that's how they actually got into that trap. Um, he was the only one to follow his orders. He didn't rush out in a burst of glory. He wasn't metal hunting. Um, he wasn't glory hunting or anything like that. He actually followed his orders, did what he was told to do when nobody else did. The reason that he stayed in that ravine was because he had no orders to pull back. And the division commander had um, issued a dictum two days before that ground once taken will be held at all costs and you will not retreat without direct and competent orders from this command and he did not have those orders so he did what he was supposed to do wonderful man wonderful yeah man. Uh, just you know a combination of of intelligence and tenacity i would say his he survived the war obviously but his life ended tragically. Can you tell us a story about that? Whittlesey came home. Um, he was actually on the ship when, when the war ended. Um, they sent him home early because the day that they, that they walked out of that uh, tra entrapment, the division commander came up and uh, personally inspected the area. They were still under fire. But the division commander came up, personally inspected the area, personally talked to Whittlesey, talked to many of the men that were in his command, and realized what had happened. Um, that afternoon, he recommended Whittlesey for the Medal of Honor. And it wasn't because Whittlesey had done anything personally heroic, like, you know, throwing himself in a hand grenade or dragging, you know, wounded men back to shelter or anything. It was because he held them together. Even the men said years years afterwards we hung on because he hung on mm. he was a tremendous leader he walked around under fire upright with his hands behind his back um he rarely ducked during an artillery barrage he rarely ducked during a machine gun barrage um he was a fatalist through and through his biggest problem coming home from the war was twofold one when they had been in the Vell sector in the summer of 18, he had been gassed and he had been gassed pretty badly and he never reported it. He never went back and sought treatment because he knew that they would take him off the line if he did. And they relied on him as part of the headquarters company. They really needed him. So he stayed on the line and this would later develop into something that was popularly known after the war as gas-related tuberculosis. Eventually, by 1921, his health was failing so bad. And since he was the hero of the First World War, they wouldn't leave him alone. The press wouldn't leave him alone. Um, he realized that he was dying. And I think he eventually just said, okay, I, there's no way out here. I am completely miserable. I will always be miserable. And the capper was um, the, the 
Unknown Soldier episode. He was one of the honorary pallbearers at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier when they laid the Unknown Soldier in 1921. Um, his second in command, George McMurtry, was with him. Uh, McMurtry also had been awarded the Medal of Honor. Sergeant York was there, and uh, he sat in the audience during the benediction, and he looked at McMurtry and he said, I shouldn't have come here. He said, I'll hear the wounded screaming at night again. I can't help but think that that's one of my men there. And after they left, he, uh, he went home. And that Thanksgiving, just a couple of weeks later, he had Thanksgiving with his best friend and um, his wife and baby. And he was in a very, very good mood. Nobody had seen him in such a good mood, literally in years. Mm. And uh, he had pretty much made the decision by then. Uh, he got up on that following Saturday and told his, his landlady, I'm going away for a while. I need a rest. Um, he paid his rent for the next month in advance and told her as he was walking out the door, you better cash that right away. He went out and he got on, on a ship um, bound for Cuba. Um, it was a pleasure cruise. Uh, the first night he had dinner at the captain's table. And for the very first time, he opened up about what happened. They asked him questions and he answered them uh, fully without hesitation. Mm -hmm. um, the only request that he made of the captain is he wanted to know the outcome of the Army Navy game that day. Um, following dinner, he went into the salon and had uh, drinks with several men. Nobody noticed anything peculiar about him. About 11.30, he got quiet and he stood up, excused himself, said he was gonna turn in, um, walked out the door nobody ever saw him again. Uh, speculation is, is that he jumped off the ship. When they didn't see him the next day, the, the sea was pretty rough. They didn't see him all day. So about four o'clock the next day, they entered his stateroom. They found nine letters that he had written. Um, his luggage had not been moved. There was instructions to the captain on what to do. Um, everything was prepared. He had prepared everything at home. He had prepared everything with uh, with his, his, his affairs. He had written a new will. Um, the only letter of those nine letters that ever came to light was the one to his best friend. And uh, he wished him to be the executor of his estate. He apologized and he said, uh, I'm a misfit by training and by nature. He said, and I just can't live with it anymore. Um, a lot of people have taken that to mean that um, he was a closet homosexual. I found absolutely no evidence that he was a closet homosexual. Um, mm. He was, a, he was a, a dedicated bachelor. And I think part of that goes back to his childhood um, he had a sister who died of black diphtheria and okay. it devastated the family. And I think that that affected him to a, to a great degree. Um, the night before he left on the ship, he had actually gone out on a date with a, a girl that he was known to keep time with. She was considerably younger than him, but I think, I think they both were at the same sort of sexual maturity level. Um, I think that he he ceased to function as sort of in, in, uh, 
an evolving adult sexually and emotionally when he was about 10, 10 or 12. So um, I think that explains a lot of that. Nevertheless, um, his suicide has kind of put a black mark on him and he's, he's not one of the more well-remembered Medal of Honor recipients to this day, even though he was the first one in the First World War to be awarded the Medal of Honor. Well, I don't think we should be judged by our, our exit. No, um, you may not agree with what he did, mm-hmm. but you can certainly see why he did it. Yes. Um, watching his he, brother, especially watching his brother de- deteriorate and knowing that's what uh, fate awaited him. And his brother died the next year of respiratory failure. So, well, I know we could talk for hours about this, this battle, but uh, it's just, it's fascinating to me because I did a film in Canada on World War One in the last hundred days. So it's, um, I know the lay of the land, so to speak. The book is called Finding the Lost Battalion, Beyond the Rumors, Myths, and Legends of America's Famous World War I Epic. Robert, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm always happy to talk about my boys and uh, to share the story. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be the author of The Bronze Lie, Mike Cole. This myth of Spartan greatness is all about the idea that they never ran from a fight, they never lost a battle, they never surrendered. You know, it's all nonsense. And let's make a scorecard and narrate that scorecard. And that became the core idea behind the book. And when I pitched it to Osprey, they were like, that's awesome, go write it. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, please share the show on social media and follow me on Twitter, at Rob Child. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group. I wanted to take a moment to thank our growing army of listener supporter members. You make it possible to continue our mission of bringing you the best military history authors, filmmakers, and movers and shakers. If you're not a member yet, it's easy to join, and it takes just seconds. Scroll down to the bottom of this episode's description and click the support link. You'll come to our anchor page, click the support button, complete the brief form. It's that easy. We're planning loyalty perks and giveaways to roll out over the coming months for our early supporters who sign on before the end of the year. So don't wait. Become a member today, and thank you for your support.